Hey, and welcome uh, once again to the Cognitive Bias Podcast. I'm your host, David Dylan Thomas, and today I want to talk about the observer expectancy effect. And to introduce that story, I'm going to tell you about Clever Hans. So Clever Hans was a horse who could apparently do arithmetic. And you would ask him a question, and he would sort of clomp his hooves until he would got to the right number and be like, oh, two, what's two plus two? And he'd clomp four times and stop. And he'd be like, oh, he knows it's four. So this was a phenomenon. And they started to study it, and what they found was... It wasn't like trickery, like no, no one was like trying to, you know, you know, give the horse a shock or something when he got to the right number or anything like that. But what they found was that um, if the person asking the question didn't know the answer, the horse would get it wrong. Or if the horse couldn't actually see the person asking the question, the horse was more likely to get it wrong. So they thought about this and what they realized by watching more closely the observer, the one asking the question, they realized that as the horse got closer to four, right, if you asked him what was two plus two, the um, the observer, the asker's body would start to tense up and like their posture would change, their facial expression would change. And then once the horse got to four, they'd relax, right? And their facial expression would change, their posture would, would relax. And the horse knew based on that cue, it had done what the asker wanted it to do and it stopped. Right. So the horse wasn't doing arithmetic. The horse was just reading body language. So first off, I think we're bearing the lead here, right? Horses can read body language, right? <laughs> you know, like I think that's worth its own study, right? Um, but in terms of this particular bias, what's happening is the observer, based on the desired outcome, is actually influencing the outcome, right? It's kind of like the Heisenberg uncertainty principle, which basically says that you can't observe a phenomenon without actually affecting it. Like you literally can't look at an electron's movement without putting a light on the electron, which then makes the electron go faster. Just by looking at it, you're changing the outcome. So, um, so there's this is kind of the psychology uh, equivalent of that, the cognitive bias equivalent of that. So. Um, the, your expectation can influence the outcome, and this isn't just with horses, this is with people. So if you sort of have a group A and group B, and you tell an experimenter, okay, here's group A, and they're going to perform a task, and we expect them to do better, and you tell a different experimenter, okay, here's group B, we expect them to do poorly, like telling that experimenter the outcome in advance, or that the expected outcome in advance, actually influences the outcome. And what the implication there is that the experimenter is behaving differently with that group based on whether or not they expect the group to do well or do poorly. And lo and behold, right, the ones who are told, hey, your group's going to do well, their group does well. Or, hey, your group's going to do poorly, hey, the group does poorly, right? Um, so this happens with people as well as horses. Um, and there's other sort of phenomenon like um, backwards masking. Back in the day, there was this whole controversy around if you played like heavy metal records backwards, there would be like these satanic verses in, in, in them. And, you know, this was part of a whole like Satanism panic back in the uh, 70s and 80s. And it's one of those things where once you're told to look for it, you hear it. Right, whether it's actually there or not, it's sort of a variation on confirmation bias. Uh, but again, your expectation actually creates the outcome in that case, um, and this can uh, affect things like, you know, leading the witness. That's kind of the legal version of this, or in um, interviewing, uh, getting getting witness testimony. Right, if you're expecting them to say a certain thing or say yes, this is the person who did that, or yes, this is what happened to you your body language, even the way you ask the questions, right, can influence that outcome. And because especially this happens with children a lot because children are sort of, 
you know, socialized to please adults. So if they think the adult is looking for answer X, they'll kind of just say answer X, even if that isn't the actual answer or they're not aware of the actual answer. Um, so this gets really tricky. And uh, so it can, it can be a way to manipulate the participants in an experiment without intending to. But also, once you've done the experiment, you might interpret the results differently, right? So if your results don't quite look the way you want, you might not publish them. Um, and this was uh, led to something fairly recently called the replication crisis in science. Uh, so an example would be there's like a marshmallow experiment where you sit a kid down in front of a marshmallow and you sort of test, you know, um, how long it takes for them to, uh, you know, to basically say to them, if you don't eat this marshmallow, I'll give you a second one and see who can actually hold out long enough to win the second marshmallow and kind of what their coping mechanisms are and blah, blah, blah. It's an interesting experiment. Here's the thing, right? And let's say someone else tries to replicate that experiment, you know, same conditions, and it doesn't quite go right. But instead, they say, well, what if I try chocolate chip cookies? And it does go right. Well, they might just publish the chocolate chip study, and it might look like they've replicated the results, but they haven't really. And so they looked back at a bunch of experiments and realized, oh, wait, we haven't really independently verified this evidence. We think we have because of what's been published, but we haven't looked at what hasn't been published, right? And so they called this the replication crisis. So they realized that these experiments and the results weren't as you know, valid or verified as they thought they were. This was a big deal, but it comes from that sort of observer expectancy bias, like they were expecting a certain outcome when they didn't get it. Instead of publishing those results, they publish, you know, they, they tweak with it until they get the result they want. So we can see, uh, and by the way, if you're, if you're interested in that whole replication crisis, there was a fantastic episode of Radiolab called Stereo Threat, which really goes more in depth and probably far more accurate than the way I'm putting it. But the, the basic concept is there. I think one of the really interesting examples of this is, you know, the experiments you hear about where a teacher is told certain members of their class have tested really well, you know, for a certain subject or like a gifted program kind of thing, right? They, they, they've tested well, and then they're told other members of the class have tested poorly. And rather than explicitly say, right, hey, you, you tested well, you get to do this or that, Implicitly, the teacher starts treating those kids differently, right? They start treating the kids who are smart as if they are, who, who, who they are told tested smart as if they are smart. They start treating the kids who they are told tested poorly like they're dumb. And this has impact. The kids who are treated as if they're smart actually do better. The kids who are, kids who are treated as if they're dumb do worse, right? So the observer expectancy effect has real important significant outcomes, right, for things like education. Um, and if nothing else, we can learn, hey, maybe if you treated all the kids like they were smart, they would do better, right? So there's these other lessons we can learn from that. But these are really powerful, um, powerful impacts. So um, I think that the... The way to get around this, I don't think, like, a, no. Um, the way to get around this, and this is, again, one of those rare biases where there is actually a fix, um, is to do double-blind experiments, right? So if you have to find out, like, do these people perform better or worse on this task, it's best not to know what the actual, um, who's the control group and who is not. And double-blind means that, um, let's say you're, you have a test and there's people in the control group and then there's people in the, like, we've actually tweaked things to find something out group. Um, the experimenters don't know who's in the control group and who's not, and the 
people in the experiment don't know who is, you know, uh, which, which group they're supposed to be in. So you basically set it up so that nobody, nobody has any expectations, right, around what the outcome should be. Therefore, that at least can't be the thing biasing them, right? Um, and right now at work, um, I work for a Think Company, which is um, an experience design firm, and we're hiring um, s- um, some developers. We're hiring uh, an apprentice, actually, for um, a sort of development apprenticeship. And... We're using kind of a double blind approach so that the people who are actually doing, looking at the resumes and kind of setting up, deciding who's going to, you know, get an interview, they don't know, right, anything or as little as possible about, right, the people who are, um, who are coming in. So they might look at a anonymized cover letter first before they see anything else. Um, and you see this in terms of like blind resumes in general, right? You start to eliminate some of the identifying information because even, you know, if you're just thinking about gender or race, a lot of people have these built-in expectations, right? So you get that observer expectancy effect of, oh, you know, I have this pattern in my head of what a developer should look like and it's the skinny white dude. Why am I seeing a resume? Just seeing that the person applying for the job is a woman, even if I'm not uh, explicitly sexist, there's going to be this just implicit bias that suddenly kicks in and makes me more critical of that resume, even if it had the same information as someone, like if I saw a man's name at the top. So you eliminate the name so that that can't be what's influencing your um, evaluation of the resume. It's just the facts of the resume, right? And this gets really tricky. There's a lot of things that, you know, could bias you that don't even realize might bias you, like what college did they go to and stuff like that, or did they go to college, right? Um, anyway, Kind of a rabbit hole, but it's based on that same notion of the expectations we walk into this with can affect the outcome uh, in unexpected ways. So double blind, which little quick history lesson, I didn't know this, double blind was kind of uh, invented or the first kind of recorded instance was back in 1907. We've had this skill for a while now, and it was for a study of the effects of caffeine. Uh, but they found that that was, the, that was their fix for walking into uh, the experiment with any expectations around what the um, impact of caffeine might be. Um, so good to end on a hopeful note, right? That, uh, this is something where, you know, if you kind of are very thoughtful and rigorous about trying to eliminate those expectations or the ability to even have those expectations, you can kind of get better outcomes and less biased outcomes. So try that in your own life. Um, I don't know how exactly, but um, I, I look forward to seeing what you come up with. Um, you can reach us on the, our Facebook page, which is uh, facebook.com slash cognitive bias podcast. Um, and, uh, one last final note, um, so I, um, so I got a review on iTunes and first off, let me just say, like, as they say in every podcast, please go and rate this on iTunes. If you like it, you know, leave a comment. Um, but, uh, cause it, it, I've actually looked at some of the stats around this and it actually does make a huge difference on what iTunes decides to, um, recommend or not. Um, but I got this wonderful little, uh, comment and it's, it's one of the, like my favorite things anyone said about the podcast was that, um, this comes from, uh, use the, uh, username is sublimina, sublimina bubble, sublimina, bu- yeah, sublimina bubble, which is just an awesome name. But, um, they said that, um, Host is charming and likable and doesn't talk in one of those weird fake radio vo- radio voices, which I don't know why, but that's like my favorite comment I've gotten <laughs> about the podcast. It's like I'm not using a weird radio voice. Um, so that's cool. Uh, thank you, Sublim- Subliminal Bubble. Sublim- yeah. Um, anyway, uh, thank you uh, for listening. Uh, we will uh, hitch up next time uh, for the Cognitive Bias Podcast. I'm your host, David Dylan Thomas. Thanks so much. Thanks.